Good evening, one and all. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, the host of Night Fright. Stop what you're doing right now. Get the coffee going. Get the tea going. Get a juice going or a beverage of your choice going. Have we got a show for you. Bill Burns is here from UFO Hunters. That's right. How great is that? Bill's here. He's uh, live via Skype right now, joining us on air from Buffalo, New York. Bill, how are you, my friend? I'm fine. I'm fine. Thank you for inviting me, and I hope that it is not as cold where you are as it is where we are. Well, I'll tell you, get the hot chocolate going too, folks, because it is freezing. The wind's blowing right across Lake Ontario, and for the first time in two years, a large section of the lake is actually frozen right over. Now, I want to ask Bill right away. I want to jump into this right away. Bill, several weeks ago, I came across an article about a UFO, this ties in with Lake Ontario, about a UFO mm -hmm. sighting beneath the waters of Lake Ontario near Hamilton, Ontario. Do you know anything about this? I think one of the things that we did in UFO magazine years ago, uh, but maybe that was Lake Michigan. Um, I think I'm confusing two cases. There was a, there was a case... Um, where there was a UFO supposedly that was downed over Lake Michigan. So that's the one that I'm thinking of. Um, but no, I did not hear about this case uh, of a UFO under Lake Ontario. I, I thought you were going to say a UFO under the Baltic Sea, but no, this is different. This is completely different. Now, what about the UFO under the Baltic Sea? Now you've aroused my curiosity. Well, I mean, divers found an object. These were people exploring the bottom of the Baltic Sea, and uh, uh, allegedly, I don't, we don't know whether it's a UFO or not. We just know that what they said they found and took photos of, possibly some video, and folks could probably see it on YouTube, was this um, round, this circular object lying on the sea bottom of the Baltic Sea. And wow. that's what they said they found. And this has been um, widely critiqued. Uh, some people have said this is the real thing. Others have said, no, it's not. Uh, but this is also very typical. There are probably, uh, and I would speculate, I don't know for a fact, but I'm speculating that there are UFO artifacts scattered around the world and that it would be interesting to see or interesting for someone or some group to catalog all the real UFO artifacts around the world, um, let's say over the past, what, 50 years maybe, and, and catalog them. And I think that what folks would see is that the overwhelming presence of artifacts that can't be explained, and I'm talking hard physical evidence, not, you know, an inscription somewhere in a cave in northern France, um, something, you know, a, a, a tangible piece of thing. And I'm wondering, I think folks, that would really make folks sit up and take notice. Well, it's funny, Bill, you mentioned that. And on the same uh, line of thought, uh, there was an article today called DNA Results for Nephilim Skulls in Peru are in Results Shocking. And this is an article by Mark Michael Snyder. Mm -hmm. And it had been covered earlier by one of our great hosts, Angela Black, who was on earlier, and she did a great job of it. Are you aware of this? I'd heard I'd heard the story about that, and you know my my first question was how did they sequence the DNA? 
Well, according to the article, I'm just opening it up right now as we speak, and uh, there's some great photos along with it. Um, whatever the sample labeled 3A has come from, it had mtDNA with mutations unknown in any human, primate, or animal known so far. Let me read that again. Mm-hmm. It had mtDNA with mutations, folks, unknown in any human, primate, or animal known so far. Now, right, that's and pretty that, explosive right there. Yeah, uh, it is. And so my question is, given the actual statement, what is the unknown factor? Is the unknown factor the mutation or is the unknown factor the DNA? It, just from the way it sounds, it sounds as though there are mutations to the mtDNA that are not known in any um, human database. Precisely, and that you know that opens up a whole huge area. Of course, uh, if it's not human DNA, animal DNA, or something that we're familiar with, well, what the heck is it? Well, see, that's what I'm asking. Yeah, is it human or animal DNA with certain mutations, and if that's the case, what might have caused those mutations? Precisely, and I'm just looking. Uh, I'm just scrolling down, and it says that. Uh, um, they had a, a look at two skulls, and um, they took the photos when the fellow returned from Chongos necro Necropolis a few weeks ago. The skull on the left shows only one peridial plate and complete absence of peridial stature. Is this a genetic trait that is only found in Paracas skulls? If so, what does it signify? Now, it's very interesting because for a long time, people believe that these elongated skulls, folks, that's what we're talking about, in Peru were the result of binding, if you will, that they would bind the skull so it would have to grow in a vertical motion. And uh, as they're finding out, it might be something even deeper than that. Indeed, it could be part of some unknown DNA that they've never discovered before. Well, so, yeah, I know. I mean, uh, there are a couple of questions with with that too. For example, we know that elongated skulls, which is the like the uh, uh, the uh, scholastic term for this thing, elongated skulls, mm -hmm. um, are really a province not only of Mesoamericans because of backboarding babies, but also in ancient Egypt. If you look right. at some of the mummies, you see this elongated, tapering skull. So, um, and one of the thoughts in the whole ancient alien theory is that the elongated skulls were, 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 were done for one of two reasons. One reason was to emulate the aliens that were living among these ancient cultures that had elongated skulls. And so to emulate their masters, so to speak, they would um, force the baby skulls to become elongated. The other is that the elongated skulls were the result of, hu of, of alien-human interbreeding. And that interbreeding created almost like a, a hybrid species of alien and human that had elongated skulls and other alien traits, which raises the question, what happened to this species? Precisely. Precisely. And... Um Definitely, there's something there, and I'm glad we're coming 
to the realization that there's something more than what the history books have been telling us all these many, many years. Folks, stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. we got a full two hours with Bill tonight. And I've asked his wife, Nancy, to join us as well. So she'll be joining us as well. I'm going to read you uh, several of the books, titles that he has written. And it's Bill Burns, of course, folks, from UFO Hunters. And he's, I've got one right here. It's book one of UFO Hunters. Been reading it. Fabulous, fabulous accounts in there. The other one is JFK. Related, and that's called Dr. Feelgood, the shocking story of the doctor who may have changed history by treating and drugging JFK, Marilyn, Elvis, and other prominent figures. The other book is The Haunting of 21st Century America. Now, easy way, folks, for you to get these books, www.nightfrightshow.com, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on the book cover associated with tonight's guest. That'll take you right to a spot where you can order these books from the comfort of your own home. Let's go back to Bill. Um, Bill, is there other evidence of ancient aliens that is as predominant as the elongated skulls that you feel even adds more credibility to this theory? Well, I think that one of the most compelling stories of ancient aliens and I don't think this is really an ancient alien, but because uh, it's probably 20th century. But the skull—well, it's actually first century. The um, this is a case of where a skull was found in a cave. Actually, a whole skeleton, about four and a half, five feet, was found in a cave in northern Mexico. And I'm really writing about this now in the second UFO Hunters book, because this is part of the episode on the Gray's Conspiracy. And so this skeleton, along with a full-sized human skeleton, which, which we know is human, it's, it's, it's a, one of the haploid species, haploid C, I think, uh, was found uh, buried by uh, a teenage girl. And this was in early, early in the 20th century. This family was vacationing in northern Mexico. She found it in a cave. She, she brought the skeletons back, and um, the rest of the skeletons somehow disappeared, but the skull the family kept, and they gave it to uh, a neonatal nurse. They didn't know what it was. They thought it was, oh, it's some poor child with hydroencephaly because the skull was like light bulb-shaped. Mm-hmm. And they gave it to this nurse, Melanie Young, and Melanie Young was a neonatal nurse which meant she had seen her share of hydroencephaletic skulls, deformed head skulls. She'd seen them. She, she, uh, she knew what they were. And she looked at it, and she said immediately there was something wrong with the hydro. The hydroencephaly is water on the brain that expands the skull. And she, so she looked at it and said there's something wrong with that theory. And the theory is she said that the bones, the back of the skull, the bones were knit symmetrically. In other words, bones that were separated at birth uh, were pressed together during the birth process and knitted symmetrically. Hydroencephalitic skulls are knit asymmetrically or not knit at all. That's part of the problem. It's the brain is kind of blowing out in one direction. So she said, whatever this thing is, and she didn't know what it was, whatever this thing is, it's certainly not displaying the symptoms of hydroencephaly. That was one. So 
she gave the skull for investigative purposes to one of the great cryptozoologists, the late Lloyd Pye. And Lloyd Pye looked at it too and said, boy, there's more more problems with the skull than meets the eye because, and let's start with the eyes. They're in the wrong place. They're too large. They're too shallow. They're actually pointed somewhat in the wrong direction. And for a human being, they're not really, they're just off by a little bit. They're not in the right place. That was the eye, eyes, the eye sockets. The next problem was the spinal column. Where the spinal column connected to the base of the brain, the medulla oblongata, the, uh, uh, the um, base of the brain, where that connection was, it was too small to support a skull of that size. Whoa. Okay? Problem. Two, the size of the skull was like 35% larger than a regular human skull, so that the brain capacity, which by the way was four lobes, not two, the brain capacity was, was larger, and theoretically speaking, the spinal column could not support the weight of that brain. But upon further examination, he found that the density, the bone, although the skull was lighter than a human skull, the bone density was much greater. They could not cut it with a saw. Well, to make long story very short, right? Mm-hmm. To make long story very short, he began this very long and rigorous DNA testing trying to sequence the genome of that skull. It took years. At first, the researchers believed that the skull could not have been a child of the woman because the DNA was different than the woman's DNA, so it wasn't the woman's child. Second, they realized that it wasn't a child. This would have been an adult, so it's a stunted adult, a, a little adult. Then... Further testing said, wait a minute, looks like the nucleic DNA. So you've got three types of DNA in uh, a human being. You've got um, the DNA from the mother, or the donor cell in the nucleus. Then you've got the DNA from the father in the nucleus. Then you've got the, micro, uh, the mitochondrial DNA, the DNA of the, of the protoplasm that surrounds the nucleus in the egg. In a normal human fertilized birth, the mother's DNA in the nucleus and the mother's DNA in the mitochondria are the same because it's the same mother. Okay. The problem occurs when the problem occurs if you have a different DNA in the mitochondria than the DNA in the mother. And that was the next thing they found, right? Weird. Now, what that would mean, Brent, would be that um, this was in um, a, some kind of an in vitro fertilization where the parents fertilized an egg, a mother's egg, then that egg was implanted into the mitochondria of a host mother. So there's the host mother's DNA in the mitochondria, the mother's DNA in the nucleus, and the father's DNA in the nucleus. Huh. Okay, that's what they thought. Well, the skull was a thousand years old, so you can't tell me they had in vitro fertilization in the year 1000, right? Right. Problem. Okay, next DNA sequence. Then they found out that the DNA in the mitochondria, the nucleus, the mother, the father, did not match 
any DNA sequence in the National Institutes of Health human database. So by definition, you're looking for what you've got is non-human DNA. So let the skeptics attack the skull, say it's hydroencephaly, say anything they want to say. Hey, what about the DNA? Show me the DNA. Unfortunately, uh, Lloyd Pye, who was a mm -hmm. very, very rigorous scholar uh, and, and a gentleman, because he withstood tirades of criticism from people who had no idea what they were talking about. And this was in the UFO community. Right. No idea what they were talking about. Tirades of criticism never lost his gentlemanly composure. He proceeded with his research diligently, moving along. Finally, um, it, he discovered, sadly, that he had uh, a very aggressive form of lymphoma. Oh. And he went to Europe for treatment, and he just recently died. So we don't know what's going to happen to the skull, who the caretaker is, whether Melanie Young still has it. We don't know. Um, I wish that I could pursue the investigation, but it's not my skull to do. So, um, but yes, so the late Lloyd Pye, and that's the chapter I'm writing. That, to me, Brent, is the single greatest proof that something is going on that the history professors don't want you to know. Let's ask, I want to ask you about that. Why don't they want us to know? Folks, we're speaking with Bill Burns. None better, folks. UFO Hunters. Remember the show. It's a great show. I'm going to ask you after if it's coming back on as well. He's got all kinds of great books out. Dr. Feelgood is another one, and that deals with the shocking story of the doctor who may have changed history, folks, by treating and drugging JFK. Marilyn, Elvis, and others. And he's got another great book if you're into um, some spooky stuff, some really great spooky stuff. It's called The Haunting of 21st Century America. All the books are written by Bill Burns, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on that book cover. Get these books. Add them to your collection. You are going to have hours and hours and hours of fun stuff, entertaining, you're going to learn a lot. You always learn a lot from Bill, without question. That's why his show was so popular. Bill, what's the threat? What is the threat? Uh, you know, I ask this over and over and over again, and I just don't get what the threat is. To me, knowledge is knowledge, and the more knowledge we have, the more understanding we're going to have of each other. It is my belief that there is a threat. Because why would, why would governments around the world, and, and, and that it's loosening, mm -hmm. but why would there be such a concerted denial of something otherworldly or other dimension or mm -hmm. the, the, um, uh, uh, one of our columnists at UFO Magazine, Alfred Lemberg, wrote a great piece about the uh, extratemporal hypotheses that we're dealing with some kind of a, um, a, a, a rift in time where people are coming back. These are all possibilities. Absolutely. It makes sense to me as well. What if, what if the knowledge that you're talking about is so profound that every aspect of the human belief system is not only shaken to its core, it's simply removed? 
I mean, that's, uh, that's what I think. I, I think that it's not just, oh, we evolved on the third rock from the sun. We're human beings, la-di-da, la-di-da. Then all of a sudden, one day, somebody came down from the sky and, and did this and did that and went to Mexico and went to South America and basically uh, showed them how to do um, um, a hydro... Um, a hydroelectric factory and went to the Middle East and, and showed the Israelites uh, how to build a battery. It was, it was, it was much, that's one thing, okay? And, mm. and believe me, the human race can take that. We can take that. Oh, that's something. But what if the nature of our very existence is something that even though we believe we know the nature of our existence. We don't. And everything we believe is absolutely wrong. In fact, not only is it absolutely wrong, what we're doing is something we've been programmed to do. That's one. Or, and this is even more mm -hmm. profound, we find out we're the aliens. We're the aliens. We came to Earth hundreds of thousands of years ago in the form of DNA, in the form of spores. We're the aliens. We were planted here to farm and to harvest and to develop this planet. And now the people who planted us here, our ancestors, so to speak, have been coming back and checking up on us. But we're the aliens. So in other words, we have met E.T. and it is us. Is us. Folks, Bill Burns, as I said before, you're going to want to get a piece of paper, folks, and a pen. Um, I'm going to give you a number in just a few seconds, folks, where you can join us online and ask Bill some questions. Bill, as an extension of that, let's get esoteric for a second. Um, if, we is, if they is us and we is them, are the people, I'll call them people, would they look like us as well? And that would explain a lot of the biblical references as well. Well, I mean, the big biblical reference to me, I mean, he, here is the first question I ever asked and gotten a lot of trouble for asking from my religious school teacher. We're talking about Genesis. Mm -hmm. And he's, she actually, is telling us the story of Genesis. And so suddenly in Genesis, after Cain kills Abel, then you hear the story of, and the children of men interacted, had relations with the children of Adam and Eve. Well, you know, how did this other species, how did this other species get here? We know how Adam and Eve got here, right? But there's suddenly another species that are called the Nephilim. And people say, oh, they're the giants in the earth. Well, they probably had a, a, a Bible, Torah tells us, that they certainly were larger because when the Israelites came to the border of the Holy Land, um, they sent spies into the Holy Land, right? A prince mm -hmm. of every tribe. Mm -hmm. And they came back saying, oh, these people are like giants. They have grapes. Look at the size of these grapes. We can't believe it. Look, these branches, it's the land of the giants. We can't kick them. We can't beat them. And so the Israelites had to wander 40 more years in the desert until that generation passed away. So we know. Then when um, they were passing into the Holy Land, um, the mighty King Og 
was a giant. He was um, one of the Nephilim. You know, somebody, somebody once said to me, um, I will bet that one day they will be excavating for a parking garage in downtown Amman, Jordan. <laughs> and they'll come across King Og's bed, and then you'll see history change, right? Oh, big but, time. But and It's going to happen because yeah. we're unearthing things from the Middle East all the time. Yeah, but how do the giants get here? That's part of the yeah. problem. Yeah. And Nephilim doesn't mean giant. Nephilim means those where the I-M is the plural in Aramaic and Hebrew. Nephilim means those who fell from the stars. And oddly enough, in the kingdom in the empire of Sumer, right in the Mesopotamian crescent, the Sumerians, they have the uh, story of the Anunnaki, those who came down from the heavens. Only it's the Anunnaki who came down and created the human race to farm the planet for them. So you've got two cultures separated, but nevertheless talking about very, very similar creation stories of, of the human race. And some people think that the, the ancient Hebrews actually came from Mesopotamia. That's where the Garden of Eden was in Mesopotamia. And they, and they are the ones that brought the creation stories to, um, well, they didn't go anywhere. They were in Mesopotamia. That was the Golden Triangle. That was where the Garden of Eden was. It's incredible stories, isn't it? I mean, the Bible is right there. The Torah, as you said, which is the Jewish Bible, folks, but essentially it's the uh, Christian uh, Old Testament. And uh, the, so many of the, these stories are reverberated throughout different cultures, as you say. Uh, one thinks right away of Noah. Uh, of course. All, all the stories of the floods as well. Folks, Bill you've Burton's, got the, Go ahead, please, got, please. No, I'm sorry. No, you've got the flood in ancient Sumeria. They've discovered an ancient Sumerian drawing of the ark. They've discovered that. It actually exists, and the ark is this big round tub. It's round. It doesn't have a bow on a stern. It's just a big round tub. And we know from historical evidence that the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea flooded into each other in ancient prehistoric times. And it's, I wonder where they got the idea for a big round tub from. Perhaps exactly. they were looking above as above, so below. Folks, Bill Burns, we've got somebody to ask you a question. His name is Christopher. Just give me a second. I'm going to drag him in. Christopher, are you there, my friend? Christopher? Nope, Christopher's gone. I'm sorry. Uh, if you want to call in, folks, now's the time. 310 310-421-4053. And if anybody has any questions, please do. Oh, it looks like I got somebody by the name of Bill here um, who would like to ask you some questions. Just give me a second, and I'll pull him in as well. Bill, how are you this evening? Oh, I don't think he's quite here. Skype takes a few seconds, folks. I know. Skype has a delay. Yeah. There we go. Bill, are you with us? Bill? No. That's funny. Anyways, let's continue with Bill Burns for now. Now, Bill, what got you interested in writing a book called The Haunting of 21st Century America? That's actually, the, the Haunting of 21st Century America is actually the fourth book in a series. 
The series started about um, 11 years ago wow. with the book Haunting of the President, which Joe Martin and I did. And it was about the White House being the most haunted house in the United States. So that's the Haunting of the President. Then we decided to do a book called The Haunting of America, which was a much broader perspective going back all the way to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the burning of the witches, the, the um, first UFO story uh, that took place north of Boston, which Governor Winthrop wrote about in the history of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So we talked about that, but, but it was a very long book. So the publisher said, why don't you do this? Break it into two other, uh, two other manuscripts, two additional manuscripts, and tie them together in terms of the 20th century and the 21st century. So we rewrote them and tied them in. So essentially, The Haunting of the 21st Century is the last book in the four-book series. I see. Okay, so that makes perfect sense. While we're on the subject of The Haunting of the Presidents, can you share maybe one or two of those stories? Well, there are a few. For example, um, George Washington. Folks know about George Washington's angelic vision at Valley Forge. But what folks really don't know about is that George Washington also saw when he went out into the forest because he was a disconsolate person. I mean, George Washington, in, in that winter, after uh, the Battle of Princeton, after they crossed over the Delaware, they were wintering in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. And it was a dreadful winter, and Washington was watching his troops just demoralized in the cold, um, they had, they had, they barely had boots. They barely had. They were just demoralized. So Washington saw his army disintegrating, freezing to death before his very eyes. He went into the woods to pray, and what he saw was this angelic vision, which told him how the United States, which would then become the United States, would win the war against Britain. But then he saw a green orb floating in the air. Really? And, out of, and out of the orb, he saw figures that he said were little green figures. Well, he told that story to his general staff, and one of the aides to that general staff, oh, I want to say in the year 1850, 1860, he was the oldest living soldier um, huh. of the Revolutionary War, he told the story to Army Stars and Stripes, and Army Stars and Stripes printed it. So that was the story of George Washington. But that didn't end there. At the outset of the Civil War, General McClelland, who was the general of the right. Army, and he was in charge of defending Washington, D.C., he, he was making all these plans and positioning his troops. Oh, he was a very meticulous general. But there was no defense, and Lincoln was screaming at him, hey, what about defending Washington? Yeah, yeah, I don't see any troops marching up and down the Capitol. You know, well, what are you doing there? Well, he didn't do it. So at night, he dozes off. The ghost of George Washington appears to General McClelland, and he, he abjures him. He says, Sentry, are you asleep at your post? And now it's Washington who shows him the entire battle plan for Washington, D.C. And at the Battle of Gettysburg, when the main regiment, the main volunteers mm -hmm. are trapped. 21st Maine, yeah. Right, 21st Maine trapped up in, um, on Little Round Top. It's Florence. Washington that leads them down the hill when they run out of ammunition, and they tear into a unit 
from Pickett's regiment, and they destroyed them. And that helps turn the tide. So it wasn't just Washington. Uh, Lincoln becomes a ghost, and he appears in the 20th century mm -hmm. in Franklin Delano Roosevelt's White House, in Ronald Reagan's White House. Ronald Reagan employs a soothsayer to tell him when to travel around. Franklin Pierce had a soothsayer. Abraham Lincoln had a soothsayer named Nettie Coburn. Uh, Hillary Clinton invokes the, the ghost of Eleanor Roosevelt to help her weather the storm of Bill Clinton's impeachment. This has been a really haunted White House. In fact, Harry Truman, in his own handwriting in his diary, Harry Truman says not only does he hear the footsteps of Abraham Lincoln walking in the family corridor, but he also sees the image of President Buchanan and President Pierce, Harry Truman says he sees ghosts in wow. the White House. That's incredible. As, as did President Eisenhower, and when uh, his grandson David Eisenhower and his wife Julie Nixon Eisenhower appeared on the Colbert Report, they even talked about ghosts in the White House. That's right, yeah. And Bill, has anybody ever mentioned seeing Kennedy at the White House? Nobody's really met. I haven't heard anybody say they've seen yeah. Ke uh, Kennedy, although the predictions that Kennedy would not survive his first term in office were rampant um, That's right. when he was inaugurated. Yeah. And um, that, uh, uh, that was very sad. Now, few people knew that JFK was suffering from, in from what in 1960 was a fatal disease called Addison's disease, That's a right. disease of the adrenal system. There was no cure for it. And Kennedy possibly would not have survived the second term in office. That's true, folks. And uh, another story uh, you had mentioned, Franklin, D. Roosevelt's um, administration, Churchill was over staying in the Lincoln bedroom, and um, he happened to be drinking and uh, smoking a cigar, naked in a bathtub, gets out of the bathtub, and is, if that's not horrifying enough, if you're getting a visual... <laughs> He runs smack dab into Lincoln's ghost. I know. That is one of the funniest stories. And so he was in the Lincoln bedroom. And so the ghost was haunting the Lincoln bedroom. And, and, and Churchill said to FDR, I'm never staying in that room again. That was it. Yeah. Folks, Bill Burns, um, if you have any questions, you could call us at 310-421-4053, www.nightfrightshow. There, folks, you will find a wealth a wealth of archives there of all the shows we've done. Uh, all the shows are there for you to download for free. Please make a donation if you're so inclined and help keep the show on the air. Um, easy way to get Bill's books, just click on the book cover associated with tonight's guest and that'll take you right to a spot where you can stay at home tonight and order the book from the comfort of your own armchair. And hopefully you're settling in and relaxing and enjoying Bill uh, as much as as I am, he's a master storyteller, and uh, what's incredible about all this stuff is he's done all the research, and they're all true. Um, Bill, are you with us from Nevada? No, he's still I'm here. Oh, you are. Bill, yes, would, you, would you like to ask Bill a question? Yeah, and Mr. Burns, uh, it's an honor to, uh, to talk to you in person. Uh, enjoyed uh, your shows very much. And, uh, but before I ask you a couple of questions, uh, Brent, I wanted to let you know that Sean David Morton yes, actually had the scientist uh, from Peru that sent the skulls to a DNA lab here in America, and he's the one that broke the story. 
and actually is sending more skulls to this particular facility indicated that some of these some of these skulls uh, even had some red hair on them so this Brian is a, Forrester. Brian Forrester so this is this is a continuing story you said it's going to take a couple of years to match everything and whatever but the but the uh, the uh, initial results of this he wanted to leak out and let people know that this is an ongoing uh, project so you might want to archive uh, Sean David Morton's uh, uh, show today, and you, you'll hear much more information about that. Yeah, Carrie Cassidy's on there. The as Carrie well. Cassidy's on there as well. That's great. Thank you for that. Yeah, Mr. Burns. Great, as I said, it's a great honor to meet you. I, I had uh, uh, two incidents, uh, UFO incidents, that you broadcasted on um, your show, UFO Hunters. The one was the the crash at the plains of San Augustine, which right. usually doesn't get much recognition because everyone talks about Roswell. But from what I understand, there, there, uh, it was felt that there was some connection uh, 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 between the two of those crashes. And, you know, reliable witnesses, the, the gentleman, I think he worked for the county as a, as a surveyor or something who came across it. And then there was... Right, Barney. A, a, he was, he, he, yes, there was Barney, who was a surveyor for the county. And there were some graduate students there that were driven off by the military. Yes, uh, I, I actually I think they walked over the hill with their uh, with their with their professor. They were doing some archaeology work, uh, which I think uh, a letter was found at, at the Harvard Library uh, some years ago, uh, uh, indicating that this professor actually was out in that area. It didn't have any reference to any crash site, but it it, it corroborated that this particular person was on an archaeological dig out in that area. And I uh, and I, I saw your show on that, and uh, it was it was fascinating. And the other show that you that you did, which I always found fascinating, was the crash in Aurora, Texas. And in fact, since I'm an attorney, I actually emailed a message to you guys and said, "Hey, if you want someone to step in and file a motion for exhumation of that uh, grave, yes, I'd, be, I'd, yes, I'd be more yes. than happy to jump in." <laughs> Thank you. Yes, that was fabulous. Would you like so him anyway, to, ju just, to jump in? I don't know and, if the and listeners know about these the, these two particular crash sites, but I thought they were you know, they were it was a very very interesting stories. Well, the story behind the Plains of San Augustine crash is that that was the result of either a collision between two craft, or that as the one craft was crashing, there was an ejection pod, and the ejection pod sent the aliens. Um, the ETs uh, against the Mesa in uh, outside of Roswell while the craft itself came down on the plains of San Augustine. That was one of the theories. That was a the theory espoused by Tom Carey, who co-wrote the book with Don Schmidt, Witness to Roswell. So that was the, the, the plane of San Augustine's theory. And wasn't, there, wasn't there a professor that went out there and he did, he did a dig and found some very interesting uh, uh, materials? Yes, that was that was one of the stories that that site has been really heavily combed, and it has been it has been unpublicized for all these years. And the other story of the Aurora, the mystery Aurora craft, one of the things we found out, or at least we think happened, is that it would have been a UFO to them. But in reality, it was um, something that was very prevalent in the latter part of the 19th century, which was metallic-clad, metal-clad hot air balloons, actually hydrogen balloons. And that this one balloon um, hit the um, water pump windmill. It was drawing water from, from, from the judge's well. 
hit that windmill, ex the spark exploded it, and that's the pieces of the uh, metallic cladding that fell into the well. Then years later, uh, the well was going dry, so what the judge's family did was they pinched off the pipes and they put a um, and they put a, a, a cement slab over the well and dug a new well. And so one of the things we found out, we didn't have anything dispositive, but we went into the well. First of all, a lot of people said the well never existed. We found that it existed. Okay, yeah, so there was a there was a rattlesnake in there. there. Yeah, Pat came up with a rattlesnake. <laughs> so we found that it existed. We found there were actually aluminum there was aluminum trace in that well. But here's the funny part of that that aluminum. It was not the aluminum that you find in a pan today. This was pre-1940s aluminum. It was a different alloy entirely. Huh. That's what we found out. So this was older aluminum. Then we talked to the local historian in the nearby town of Stephenville, Texas, the great Stephenville, Texas lights. And what she told us is that that metal-clad balloon, there was a metal-clad balloon that came down in Stephenville or in Dublin really a couple of days before because the pilot couldn't get the engine working. He had to settle it down. If he had that same problem when he was approaching, and believe me, I've seen balloons around here struggle to get altitude. If he had that same problem in Aurora, Texas, he might well have hit that windmill. Huh. Bill, did you have a second question for Bill? No, that was just uh, the, those. You know, uh, well, uh, and how did the how did the headstone of the uh, of the uh, of the alien uh, appear in the cemetery? You think that was just something that was just put there uh, by spoof? Well, one of the things that happened, of course, was that after the Aurora crash, there was somebody who was a signals officer in the army who wrote up the story for a Dallas newspaper. Well, a signals officer for the Army, circa 1897, 1898, that's intelligence. The Burn was an intelligence officer, and he wrote that, and that began the story of the UFO crash in Aurora. The, believe me, UFO stories in the early part of the 20th century abound. Supposedly, Baron von Richthofen, the Red Baron, shot down a UFO. I can't tell you that's true. I can only tell you that's one of the stories. Mm. And um, that began this whole story of what happened to the pilot of that balloon. He was very, very badly burned from the explosion of the gas. He was complete. He was almost incinerated. And they took that body and they buried it he was a small man, and they buried that in an unmarked grave. Well, supposedly the headstone was changed. Nobody knew where the grave was. When we, um, when we brought in the ground-penetrating radar, the GPR, the radar operator said there was definitely a grave down there. There was definitely a coffin down there. Yeah, well, that's very interesting. But I, I, anyway, it's a pleasure, pleasure to talk to you and, and meet you over uh, the, the phone and everything. Thank you very much, Brent, for having me on your show. Oh, stick Thank around, you, Bill. Bill. I want to ask Bill, uh, Bill Burns, if, you, if he would like to take you up on your offer, Bill from Nevada, of um, trying to get something legal to exhume the body. I think that it would be um, – I think that at this point – yeah, I mean, I would say that I would happily work with Jim Mars, who was one of the main writers on this story and guy I respect very much. I know Jim. I'd work a great with guy. 
Yeah, I would work with Jim Mars, and we could file. I guess you have to file a motion with um, whatever appropriate county that's in. I think it's Wise County. Uh, you have to file a motion and get a judge to order an exhumation, and I think that would be a good idea. So um, I would say Brent can take all your contact info, sure. and I'll hook up with Jim Mars, and we'll, uh, the three of us will get together, and let's file a motion and get an exhumation order from uh, the local county judge. Well, if we could do that, that that'd be great. Uh, Brent, uh, Angela wanted to say hello. Oh, I just wanted to say hello to Bill Burns and Brent Holland. I'm Angela Black on the station here, and uh, just, uh, you know, my husband is uh, my better half, and I'm glad he was able to finally... Uh, uh, meet you, Bill. I know that he's wanted to contact you for a while, and Brent Holland uh, is, uh, is has become a good friend of ours. So it's uh, it's great to hear you guys interacting, and uh, happy to have you on the show at Revolution Radio today. Thank Thanks, you, Angela. Thanks, Bill and Bill. Um, we're continuing with Bill Burns tonight, folks. www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's guest book cover. That'll take you right to a spot where you can order Bill's books. Bill, I want to stay on that idea of the military as well. I was wondering if we could get into Brent Waters. I know it's a story that's been covered before, but I, I, I find this one fascinating for a specific reason. And that is we finally have military validation that something abnormal has gone on and people are willing to step up to the plate, which is rare from a military uh, standpoint. Could we get into the Brentwater story? Sure, sure. Thanks, buddy. Can you can we start it off and? Um... Sure. Well, um, it's a long story, but let me just collapse it. Um, on on one night, I believe it's December 1980. It's shortly after the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan. The um, a security detail at uh, RAF Bentwaters, which is a base that's controlled by the U.S. Air Force under. So it's a NATO base, right? RAF Bentwaters, the, um, they get um, an alert that there are flashing lights over the base. They can't figure out why. They go to investigate it. They see that they are out in Rendlesham Forest. Bentwaters is United States Air Force territory. Rendlesham Forest is a royal forest. So you've got a jurisdictional problem right from the get-go. So the security detail, and this is led by uh, Jim Penniston and others, uh, he, who's a sergeant, they open up the gates and they send a crew out there, and what they see is stunning. What they see is an oval-shaped object that has settled down into the sand. Now, we're not talking about the sands in um, Venice Beach or in, right, Mm -hmm. or, or in Redondo Beach, California, we're talking about cold, hard, sandy earth. And it leaves a set of impressions. And people are literally freaking out. They are totally freaking out. They don't know what it is. It looks like um, Jim Penniston had said there's some kind of lettering on it. Um, they think they see figures. But as they approach this object in the forest, they experience something that... Um, UFO researchers have called the Oz effect, and the Oz effect simply stated is in a heavy-duty uh, static electrical envelope, the human body slows down because, after all, we, our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our signals to our muscles, the signals we, um, we receive from our sensors are 
nothing more than electrons. That's we right. are a series of electrons. Mm -hmm. So when something interferes with that electron flow, we slow down, and that's what happens. So they write this report up, and they, they tell this to um, Charles Holt, who's the deputy base commander. Well, the rumors are rampant around the base. There was a UFO. Finally, the next night, and this is at a Christmas party, Charles Holt gets a report from his folks that this thing is back. And Holt says to his commander, and I forget the guy's name, I think it's Conrad, he says, um, I'm going to put an end to this right now. He gathers a crew, gathers some radios, takes his voice recorder, gets some light-alls, which are generator-powered lights, gets them out there, they go out there, and they see something very similar. They see a light, and the light is moving across the forest floor, through the forest. They follow it. Now, these are guys, armed United States service mm. personnel, going into British territory. They do this, and they get to the edge of a clearing where Charles Holt says, and he's recording this on tape, by the way, on his voice. It's a Lanier voice recorder. And as he goes out, they see this thing hovering on the ground, in a clearing that's a private farm. So now it's out of the forest. This is private territory. They're not allowed on it. And they see this. And the next thing they knew, it, 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 it explodes into five objects and they all fly away. And that's the story. Now, in the middle of the Cold War. And that's a colonel, Colonel Holt. Yes, he was a lieutenant colonel at the time. He was actually um, very important in some... Um, uh, some military activities in Vietnam, and because we talked about that too. So, um, Charles Holt writes a report. That report gets buried. But here's where, if it's not interesting enough, here's where it gets interesting. Within a day, three entities get involved. One is um, MI5. They get involved. And they send their agents out to all these people in the surrounding areas to find out what happened and coach them into say that the Americans are crazy. That's one. <laughs> Two is the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, the FOSI. They get involved and they jump on this with the people who are out in the forest. They do everything to this poor crew. And if you read um, Larry Warnes and Peter Robbins left at Eastgate and listen to people like Jim Penniston, you'll find out what they did to these people. They are drugged. They are hypnotized. They are conditioned. They are told to lie to their commanding officer. Now, th but the other group that gets involved, the NSA has a station over at the Orford Ness Light. They get involved in their questioning too. So immediately, this is taken very seriously. Now, one of the things we discovered, which I think is important, is in addition to all these entities getting involved and in conditioning the people, what we discovered was that during the entire incidents, that this was a nuclear base. Precisely. Right? We had yep. nuclear weapons on British soil, but this is a nuclear base. But in a nuclear base, and this is also according to Gary Hazeltine, who was Royal Air Force Police, so he told us this, that there in a nuclear base there's a watchtower, and that watchtower is manned 24-7. So for all the debunking that's gone on, and the debunking was horrific, because it's just the debunking, we debunk them. <laughs> in the debunking, 
they said, well, there were no witnesses other than the people that were on the ground who were completely mistaken. Wrong. There was a person in the watchtower who saw the whole incident unfold, unfold, including the lights in the sky. So the Bent Waters incident was not a hoax. It was not delusional or hallucinations. It was not mistaken. It was a real, live UFO incident that took place. Bill, you know, I was, I was pondering this, this next question. I, I was talking to a friend of mine last night about Area 51. And I was saying in the Cold War, you know, when remote viewing started with the Soviets, then the American intelligentsia got involved with remote viewing too. My point is if there's an Area 51 in the West, would there be its equivalent in the old Soviet uh, Union or perhaps Russia today? Yes, it's called Kapustin Yar. Aha. And, and Kapustin Yar is the Soviet equivalent of our Area 51 where they test exotic aircraft, but also if there are aircraft that have crashed in Russia, we know there are air, that there are spacecraft that crashed in Russia. One of the greatest stories of a so uh, there are two great stories about that. But uh, they go to Kapustin Yar, and in fact, the person who told us about what was in Kapustin Yar was none other than Nikita Khrushchev's son. My goodness, you're kidding. I didn't know Seriously, this Seriously, yes. Oh, well, you know, this, this is a great We took segment. him to the edge of Kapustin Yar, and he said, right in Kapustin Yar, there are UFOs. We're coming up to a break in less than a minute, but uh, I want to come back to this as well, because one of the questions I was going to lead up to, this was going to be a segue for me, there's always an increase in UFO activity whenever there seems to be a, a closeness to DEFCON 3 or something in the nuclear. There may be a, a, a standoff or something of that nature. I was going to ask you, was there any increase in UFO activity around the Cuban Missile Crisis? That I'm not sure about. I know there was certainly an increase in UFO activity in the, in, in the, in the early 1960s. And uh, we were actually... In the, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, yes, sir. we actually flew intercept planes with nuclear-tipped missiles. That's how close we were to war, with nuclear-tipped missiles over Alaska, out into the Bering Straits, waiting for the Soviet bomber fleet to come across. There's a reason they didn't, which I found out in writing Dr. Feelgood. Hang on to that, because these, these are all incredible questions. I don't know about you folks, but I'm riveted to my seat tonight. This is fantastic. I can't believe an hour's gone by. When you have an amazing guest, this is what happens. Uh, folks, once again, 310-421-4053, 310-421-4053. Stick with us. Come back after the break. And uh, break is about three or four minutes long, and I better shut up so they can get to it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bill. We'll see you soon. Greetings, folks. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. 310-421-4053. 310-421-4053. That's the phone number if you have questions for our amazing guest tonight, Bill Burns. Yeah, the same Bill Burns from UFO Hunters and all the wonderful books he's read. Now, just before we took that break, I was asking Bill if there was an increase in UFO sightings around the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that led us into a brief conversation about the Cold War. You can tell I'm Canadian as soon as that one darn word. 
don't pick on me, folks, just because I'm Canadian. <laughs> the word is about. And we, Bill had mentioned the word, um, the place that is the exact mirror, if you will, of Area 51 called Capustun. Have I got that right, Bill? It's Capustin Yor. Capustin Yor. Okay. Much better pronunciation than what I just destroyed. That's because you're Canadian. Yeah, I was going to say, mm -hmm. there's that Canadian, crazy Canadian stuff. <laughs> a. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. You Probably know, I should do too many on. donuts and beer. <laughs> Mostly the beer, I think, has a lot to do with it. God, it's freezing up here. What else are we going to do but play it's hockey true. and drink beer? It's crazy. Um, can we talk a little bit about what Khrushchev's son told you? This is an amazing story, Bill. I am absolutely glued to this chair, folks, as I'm sure you are. Would you tell us that story? Sure. Thanks, the, buddy. The, um, the, um, there have been many UFO crashes over the Soviet Union. Um, both the Soviet Union and the United States. I mean, obviously England as well, but and France. But the Soviet Union and the United States were surveillance targets of um, UFOs. Whoever was flying these UFOs, we don't know. The reason was, as of the end of World War II in 1945, and this explains the Roswell crashes as well as the UFO surveillance over Hanford's nuclear plant, mm -hmm. over Los Alamos, and over Oak Ridge, so <clears throat> Tennessee. So the, the, the um, world circa 1945 was basically a now a world capable of being destroyed through nuclear weapons. Life could be wiped out on this planet. Uh, uh, Carl Sagan often talked about the nuclear winter, right. and uh, which basically would change the climate of planet Earth. If there were an agenda for extraterrestrials, if there were an agenda, and if that agenda included preserving life on Earth, such as it is, preserving life on Earth, preserving human life, and preserving the planet, then the level of UFO surveillance dramatically increased after the explosions of, at uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And partly, um, since I used to write for Star Trek, partly one of the um, aspects is that in one of Ah, I'm back. So I don't know, you know, oh, we lost connection. But, but what I was saying was it's so similar to one of the stories out of Star Trek in which after the um, warp engine was developed and a warp signature was discovered by the Vulcans, that was their, that was their signal to make first contact because human beings had discovered uh, speed faster than light. And that was um, game-changing in the galaxy. Well, much the same thing. Imagine that with nuclear weapons. Suddenly, it's a game-changer. I mean, as, as, as bad as the terror bombing was of, of Tokyo and Hamburg and Schweinfurt and um, etc., as bad as that was, and of course, the terror bombing of Coventry and London and, and, and British and Manchester and British cities, as bad as the terror bombing was in, in World War II, yes. nuclear weapons were actually game changers. 
And so that would have been the reason for not just heightened surveillance of planet Earth by whatever creatures these are, but of active intervention. And so part of that intervention took place in the old Soviet Union. And one of the things that Eisenhower did, I mean, people think about President Eisenhower as this, oh, nothing really happened. It was the 1950s, Dick Clark, Dairy Queen, UFO <laughs> movies, things like that, great cars with fins. In reality, the 1950s, uh, uh, the two Eisenhower terms in office were critical terms because somebody had to get us out of war. Eisenhower's first role in 1953 was to get us out of Korea. Eisenhower didn't get us into Vietnam in 1954 when the French fortress at Dien Bien Phu fell. I mean, right. Eisenhower um, did open skies with the Soviet Union. Some say Eisenhower did open skies with extraterrestrials at, at uh, Muroc right. and at various meetings with, uh, uh, with extraterrestrials. But in the Soviet Union... There were a number of incidents. One incident which really stands out is uh, the crash of a cylindrical craft on the old, um, it's the old Silk Trail between um, Russia and Mongolia, and it's in uh, uh, Kyrgyzstan. And this was a story told by the local Kyrgyz tribes people, and an expedition went up to explore that crash site into the mountains. And as they approached the crash site, expedition members were getting sicker and sicker. Watches stopped. Electrical equipment stopped working. In fact, the envelope of electrical interference uh, was so great in that area that they had to abandon the expedition and leave. Well, shortly after that, the Soviet army arrived and they used helicopter sky cranes to lift the craft out of the area and take it away. Where they took it was Kapustin Yar. And years later, another expedition went back to find remnants of the craft, but the area had been scrubbed clean, even though there was still residual energy. And that story is still told today by the people who live in the area. That's incredible. I had no idea of this story. Thank you for sharing that with us now. This is going to lead to a whole series of other questions as well. With the so-called falling of the Cold War and the wall as well, the Berlin Wall, mm -hmm. do you think there's communication now back and forth between Area 51 and Kapustin? Well, I think and sharing that, of information. Well, I think there is, and maybe not necessarily from Area 51. And I think a lot of the UFO material that was going on at Area 51 left Area 51 after the Bob Lazar story exploded and went to Dugway Proving Grounds in Utah, which we call Area 52, which is far more secure than Nellis Air Force Base in uh, outside of Las Vegas. Interesting. Um, you know, um, I had the Canadian, the ex-Canadian defense minister on the show, Paul Hellyer. And mm -hmm. I know Paul, a, yeah. I, I'm so old, I, I remember when he was brand new, folks. Um, all that to say, he was an amazing defense minister as well. He was under Trudeau, and he worked with Louis Saint Laurent, who was prime minister. Just service obut, which means to the maximum in Canada. Uh, for the Canadian people, and I would argue the world as well. He was adamant that the Avro Arrow aircraft, that wonderful aircraft that was designed here in Canada in the late 50s, 
One of them has been rumored to have survived, and he is adamant that that aircraft is in existence today in Area 51. So there's a little bit of Canadian trivia for you as well, folks. Now, we all know, too, that Avro, that space company, if you will, aerospace company, and they were making airplanes, was working on something called a space car. Yes, the space car. Yeah. Do you think that – geez, here's a, here's a funny – It didn't one. fly. I mean – I was going to ask you if it ever it took It really off, didn't fly. <laughs> I mean, no. It really didn't fly. And, and, and a, a lot of the – It looked like the, a hockey um, puck, I think. Well, it looked, like a, it looked like, a, um, like a, a bouncing hockey puck. There you go. Is what it looked yeah. like. Little Canadian uh, an, an analogy for us there. Uh, okay, so I was just wondering if perhaps – it's a bit of a stretch, Bill, but you're the guy to ask. Do you think perhaps that may have been reverse engineered from some of the captured UFO material? Well, there was a lot of captured UFO material from this from um, Germany at the end of World War II. Remember, there was the Hanubu disc that right. crashed in the Black yes. Forest that That's reportedly right. was used to um, that they reverse engineered, and the Horton brothers were kind of involved in that reverse engineering. And the fascinating thing about that is that the German National Socialist connection to an off-world origin for the Aryan race really began in the late 19th century with um, the Brill Society, then the mm -hmm. Thule Society. That's right. And that was inspired by Madame Helena Blavatsky, um, in the in the latter part of the 19th century who had come to the United States and she started theosophy and she's the one that that was saying that there was an off-world connection when the Germans um, investigated the Maria Orsich and the Brill Society um, Maria Orsich was saying Orchi was saying that the Aryan race began on the planet Aldebaran and came to Thule, Greenland. Hence, when the Germans took over the Vril Society, they, they formed their own cult called the Thule Society. And that became the kind of extraterrestrial cult underpinning for Aryan superiority. And that turned the Germans toward the investigation of extraterrestrial races. Do you think that the particular race that they were investigating was malevolent and somehow propping up the Nazis? Um, or am I going way too far out? No, I, I, think, I think what they were investigating was that there was a group of extraterrestrials, extraterrestrial Aryans, who came to Earth thousands and thousands of years ago. I see. And they were the progenitors of the Aryan race. And then in the 19th century, the Germans discovered a hole in the Earth at the South Pole. And they started a kingdom there called New Swabia. And supposedly that's where a lot of the Nazi leaders fled that were never found after World War II. That's right, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't only just Argentina, it was other places as well. Right, yeah, they I were hate, all headed south, yeah. yeah. I hate those guys, by the way, folks. Fans of the show will know how I detest Nazis. And um, 
Yeah, I just don't want a, a Holocaust to happen again. I think it was absolutely the worst moment of human history. Now, as an extension of that, Bill, we would talked about the fact that the UFOs were showing up around 1947, of course. There was a crash at Roswell. All around the nuclear blast, the testing of atomic weapons as well. I have often pondered if we did destroy ourselves, if we imploded our planet, that would leave a void that inevitably would cause a domino reaction to the rest of the universe. Do you think that could be part of the reason that they're showing up and keeping an eye on us, a very vigilant eye? Well, I keep thinking uh, there are a lot of alternate theories. For example, sure, please. let's say that UFOs are interdimensional yes, sir. and that uh, the destruction of this planet would tear a hole in the, in the dimensional membranes that mm. separate various realities. And if that's the case, for their own self-preservation, they're going to stop us from causing that devastation. Let's hope they stay. Hypothesis in. two. They're sure. not just space travelers. They're time travelers. And, 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 and we are in a time loop, which is there is intervention in our history to keep us from destroying ourselves. Greek is quite possibly in one particular timeline as one self-described extraterrestrial told me, we did destroy ourselves. Oh, that's really uh, terrifying and ominous all at the same time. Right. I mean, uh, yeah. one of the things we don't realize, I mean, I, I, yes, we are now in the theory of the expanding universe where there is some matter, dark matter, maybe subatomic particles of dark matter that are providing the energy for all matter in the universe to expand. But what if there's a certain point where the um, magnetic, and I think it's magnetic more than gravitational, the magnetic attraction among particles is such that we begin the big collapse. And what if this has happened a gazillion times over and over and over again? And I keep saying this because we have no way of knowing. We can try to figure this out um, mathematically, but, but it would still only be theory because we are finite. We are stuck in this particular time frame. But what if, since matter can neither be destroyed or created, what if the same stuff that makes us has made and remade and re-remade us millions and millions of times over? And what we are repeating is a loop of something that's happened many, many times before and will happen forever. And Whoa. if that's the case, there are intimations of past and future because it's all the same matter. Precisely. There is no time. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's a human invention just so we can measure things and, and nothing else. Well, we know that time is a construct of matter. No matter... To decay, no time. Let's stay in the esoteric realm, uh, Bill. We've got Bill back from Nevada who wants to ask you a question. Yes, hi, Mr. Burns. Hi, Bill. What, what, what credence do you give to the stories that you see with, about uh, the alien uh, bases on the, on the dark side of the moon? And we see conferences where people uh, work for, they say they work for the government, that they were 
uh, hired to brush out uh, certain objects that, that, that looked extraterrestrial on the backside of the moon. What information, if any, do you have with, with regards to that? Well, the person who told that story, there, there are two stories that we, I heard personally. One was from Donna Hare, who was in the photo processing department at NASA. And uh, that story, her, 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 the premise of her story was confirmed by John Schusler, who was one of the directors at NASA. And um, Donna Hare said that she was, this is before the days of Photoshop. This is before <laughs> the days where, where if you wanted to change a photo, you went in with an airbrush. And uh, she was in the photo processing department at NASA, and there were some photos. And um, on one of these photos was a kind of a, an, artificial spe an artificially shaped speck. And that, she said, looked like a spaceship to her. And the NASA photo processor was busy airbrushing it out, and she was horrified. And she says, what are you doing? You're changing this photo of, 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 of the lunar surface? And he said, it's our policy. We can't allow any anomalous objects to appear in the lunar surface. Personal story from an eyewitness. Mm. Another, again, this is before the days of Photoshop, was told by, um, uh, by an Air Force um, enlisted person who was in charge. He was the technician in the photo repair shop at an Air Force base. And on the other half of the base, which was classified to him, he was not allowed to go there, there was a NASA installation. And, and one weekend, when everybody was off, the photo processing unit on that side of the base broke. And there was no technician to fix it. And they were getting incoming photos from the lunar surface. So they called this guy, who was on the unclassified side of the base, because he was the photo tech, and he went over there and he said he was astounded. There were Russians, there were Chinese, there was this whole international on that side of the base that I'd never seen anything like it, and this is an Air Force base, and it's supposed to be classified. I never saw that in my entire life. He sees the machine and he runs his test over it. He says, ah, he said, there's a processing unit here that's broken. I'm going to have to take this thing back to my shop and install the new processing unit and then reconnect it and see if I can get the unit to work. Because they didn't have any spare part. And so they took it back on the other side of the base again to this guy's shop. And it was a, a fairly conventional photo processing machine. He installed it. And, and the photos had already been stored in the machine, but they just hadn't been processed yet. So he installed it. Sure enough, it worked. And out comes this kind of strip of photos and and this one guy I'm not going to mention his name he's a friend of mine this one guy his jaw drops he looks and he sees factory buildings on the moon and so the guy the Air Force guy who was with him because he had to accompany the machine it's classified he says yeah it's am it's amazing you know there there are already people on the moon then he realizes that this guy wasn't authorized to have that information and he turns pale as a sheet and says you 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 can't talk about this you, you can't mention we're both dead wow that's pretty electric isn't yeah. it yeah. yeah it is thank you very much sure
Thanks for that, Bill, from Nevada. And you bet. Folks just joining us, Bill Burns is our guest tonight, UFO Hunters, and is one of his books. It's uh, Volume 1, The Haunting of 21st Century America and Dr. Feelgood. And we're going to get into some Dr. Feelgood right now in JFK. Easy way to get his books and hear all the archives of our shows, www.nightfrightshow.com, www.nightfrightshow.com. Also, folks, please make a donation, help keep us on the air. Bill, let's talk about what led you to Dr. Feelgood and the research that you've put into this book is astounding as well. Um, what led you to writing a book? Well, it was, actually, it was actually uh, uh, my co-author, Richard Lertzman. Um, long, involved story, which nobody really wants to hear, but um, it, it involved when um, uh, um, uh, my father was a merchandising agent, a licensing agent in Hollywood and then in New York in the 1930s. And um, one of his... Uh, he um, he and George Burns had oh, started man. in he and George Burns, which is why that's my name, um, started in show business together in the late 19th century, and they remained friends throughout their lives. And um, George Burns was my godfather. And um, George Burns owned a company. And when now, I, wait a second! Were, not only was he your godfather, but he actually was God. Yeah. Right, he played God movie. in the movie, yeah. Oh God, right. or in yeah. fact, all, all incarnations of that movie. In yeah. fact, one of the last times back in the 90s, when I, I would visit him a lot in Hollywood, and then when we were living in California, I'd just drive over to the studio, um, he would like summon me to ask me what's new. Um, he wanted, uh, toward the end of his life, and I actually tried to do this as an agent, um, he wanted to make another Oh God movie. So um, he, he, he was sitting up in his high director's chair. So, so he goes, um, I'm, I'm not going to do my impersonation. I just His voice rings in my head a lot. He, he, he goes, um, so Billy, why, um, how would you do the next Oh God movie? So I said, you know, I called him Uncle Nat because his real name was Nathan Birnbaum. And I said, you know, uh, well, what I'd suggest is that it's like the movie Death Takes a Holiday, only this time it's God Takes a Holiday, and Earth almost goes spinning off his axis because God wants to hang around Earth and not do what he does. And George says, that's a great idea. Get me Larry Gelbart. <laughs> well, nobody's getting Larry Gelbart. I'm certainly not getting Larry Gelbart, but um, he's one of the most famous writers in Hollywood. I know, I know, um, yeah. And, um, but, but, but the thing was that um, you couldn't insure a movie with George Burns in it. And so one of the things I said to one of the studios was, why don't you shoot all of George Burns' scenes separately the way they did in Cannonball Run and then build a movie around those scenes? And they said, it'll never, never work. Give it up. So, um, But anyway, um, one of, uh, George Burns um, owned the company called McCadden Productions. It was owned by George and Gracie, my godmother Gracie. Wow. And uh, they owned this company, McCadden Productions. And it was actually at McCadden Studios. That's why it was called McCadden Productions. And um, folks know Los Angeles. It was Dan by Las Palmas, I think. Hollywood Studios is now Dan by Las Palmas. And um, 
one of the shows McCadden Productions did, their main show was the old Bob Cummings show. Love that Bob. And one of the people who worked on the old Bob Cummings show, Love That Bob, was the kid who played Chuck, Dwayne Hickman. Oh. Well, when I, well, when I got to Hollywood, the um, publicity guy who represented Dwayne Hickman knew my father and said, you know, you should get together with Dwayne Hickman because uh, I got together with Dwayne and I represented Dwayne Hickman's book, Forever Dobie. So Dwayne Hickman and I got together on that book. That's how I got to represent Bob Denver and Gilligan Maynard and me and Dawn Wells, who I'm representing again in her Gilligan's Island cookbook. I became friends with Gilligan's Island and Sherwood Schwartz and Lloyd Schwartz and Rocky Kalish, et cetera, et cetera. I love classic television. Anyway, yeah, me too. And, you know, Ginger was, uh, well, you know, there was Ginger well, and Tina Marianne. Louise. Yeah. yeah, yeah and was, uh, yeah. I'll tell you, Marianne was always, as a young, young, young man, uh, was always my fave. So there you go. Well, <laughs> there was Marianne. There was Ginger. I, I, I was friends with Tina Louise. In fact, we were going to buy her house up in Beverly Hills. And then um, there was Barbara Eden, uh, sure. who I met. Who uh, who I Imagine met? Genie, yeah. yeah, and then of course um, there was Elizabeth Montgomery, who I never met, but I did do the Bewitched Cookbook years and years later. That was one of my books. But anyway, so represented Dwayne Hickman. Years later, after the book is out, yes, sir. Richard Lertzman, Rick Lertzman, is talking about Bob Cummings and Bob Cummings' precipitous fall from grace as one of the, the A-list actors of the 1940s and 50s. Remember, this was the guy Alfred Hitchcock would turn to when he needed a good character actor. He was in Dilemma for Murder with Ray Milland. He was in um, he was in Saboteur. He was in a lot of these movies. And on television, the Bob Cummings show was one of the hottest shows on television. Well. Bob Cummings had this precipitous fall, and Rick Lertzman was out to do a biography of, 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 of Bob Cummings. So one of the people he spoke to was Art Linkletter, and Linkletter yeah. told him the story of Bob Cummings getting addicted to methamphetamine, and he said, you know, the person you should talk to was his co-star in the series, Dwayne Hickman. He contacts Dwayne Hickman. Dwayne Hickman says, you know, if you want to talk about what happened on the old George Burns show, talk to Burns because Burns was his godson calls me up, we begin talking about Bob Cummings, and I said, well, you know, the doctor you're talking about, Rick, is Max Jacobson. Yeah, yeah, we know that. Well, you know, Max Jacobson was John F. Kennedy's doctor. Mm. Well, that began the search. We went through medical records, Kennedy records, spoke to link letters, spoke to the actress Pat Suzuki, spoke to um, all these people in, in the 1950s surrounding Jacobson. We came up with then... We spoke to the late um, C. David Heyman, who wrote the book Jackie O, and was sure. working with John F. Kennedy Jr., little John John. He wasn't so little anymore. He was the editor of George Magazine, working uh, right. with John John to, um, on his story. And John F. Kennedy Jr. came right out and told C. David Heyman, he said, you know, my mother died from aggressive lymphoma, and the lymphoma came from the methamphetamine she was getting from Max Jacobson. Oh well, my God. that put two and two together, and David Heyman said, you know, I'll tell you where Max Jacobson's own manuscript is. It's sitting in the special collection at the SUNY Stony Brook Library. 
So we went out to Stony Brook, Rick copied the whole manuscript, we digitized it, and from that we did other research and talking to other people, Eddie Fisher was a phenomenal source. Debbie Fisher was, uh, uh, Debbie Reynolds was laughing too hard when, we, uh, when she was interviewed about Eddie Fisher, because Eddie Fisher, he was a drug addict. Uh, but Eddie Fisher told us unbelievable stories about picking up JFK at the airport in Los Angeles, driving him over to one of the houses of an actress we're not going to mention, and he stayed there for a few hours, and they picked him up and drove him back, right? Then we discovered the story of Mary Pinchot Meyer, who was m murdered in the on the Georgetown Canal in October 1964, just about a year after the JFK, almost a year later after the JFK assassination. Well, yes, it's a tragedy murder, and she was married to Cord Meyer, who was a CIA agent. Yes, yes, her yes. Sister, her sister was um, Tony Pinchot, who married Ben Bradley and became Tony Bradley, Ben Bradley of the Washington Post. Well, after Mary Pinchot was murdered, Ben and Tony Bradley go to her house, and there they find none other than the CIA's own James Jesus Angleman, head of the CIA counter-espionage unit, going through Mary Meyer's desk looking for her diary. Why was he looking for Mary Meyer's diary, and why was that related, and, and was that related to the Kennedy assassination? Well, the answer was Mary Meyer and JFK were both having a very torrid affair. She was the liaison between Dr. Timothy Leary bringing LSD to the White House, but also they were both patients of Max Jacobson, and what the CIA wanted to know was what Kennedy told her about Max Jacobson and about UFOs. Because this Kennedy is incredibly explosive. This is incredible, Bill. Because Kennedy was talking out of school to Marilyn Monroe, to, Dor to uh, Mary Pinchot Myers, to Dorothy Kilgallen, to a lot of people, and under the influence of methamphetamines. Because Jacobson was giving him shots two and three times a week under the influence of methamphetamines, Kennedy was making these assignations with call girls in New York City when he would come to Manhattan and slipping away from his Secret Service detail to go have sex with these call girls. The CIA was beside themselves. Here's the President of the United States unprotected going out and having sex all over the place. What if one of these women... Oh, it was KGB. And here's the worst part about it. Max Jacobson was a Soviet operative. He was turned in Vienna in the 1930s. And the person in the White House who was the family photographer taking all the pictures, who was also a Max Jacobson patient, was Mark Shaw, who was a CIA non-official cover officer. That's how crazy this got. Oh, my God. And I should mention, folks, uh, Dorothy Kilgallen who Bill just mentioned, she died very mysteriously, to put it mildly, just before she was about to release an interview. She had done exclusive interview with Jack Ruby, and as we all know, Jack Ruby is the mafioso who silenced Lee Harvey Oswald only three days after the JFK assassination. Jack Ruby owned a ton of money to Sam Giancana. That's right. Who was another Max Jacobson patient. Is that Max right? Jacobson. Well, the whole Rat Pack. We're, we're, sure. well, we're going to Max Jacobson, Frank Sinatra, Dean Morton, Sammy Davis, Joey Bishop, the whole bunch of them. And they're angry about it. I mean, Joey Bishop was still angry about it when we interviewed him. Um, 
There are a lot of people who wouldn't even talk about him. Uh, Mickey Mantle was one of the patients. He was getting shots from Max Jacobs, and Mickey Mantle was one of the first athletes getting performance-enhancing drugs during his home run derby in 1961 with Roger Maris. Wow. And, folks, this is all from Bill's book, Dr. Feelgood, the shocking story of the doctor who may have changed history. He only treated, are you ready for this, folks? JFK, Marilyn, Elvis, and other prominent figures, as Bill has just told us. Easy to way to get his book and get this book. This is electric stuff, folks. You won't find this everywhere. This is an amazing book. www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on the book cover. Get your, do yourself a favor. I mean, it's cold out there. It's nasty. This is a perfect book to settle in with. And just learn all this stuff, how all this, the same names keep popping up over and over and over again. Bill Burns, folks, um, what was the most shocking thing that you found out in this book? What was the one that really said, oh, my God, this might be one of the keys to the assassination? Well, well, for me, it was this business of um, Bobby Kennedy yes, sir. Um, was furious at Max Jacobson. Because he knew he was injecting his brother with something deadly, so um, the person flying, the person flying Max Jacobson back and forth from Manhattan to the White House was uh, this highly decorated former OSS officer who himself was a Holocaust survivor, called Mike Samick. He was the head of ITT. So, um, my, so the. And they were all friends. They go to the White House, and Bobby Kennedy confronts them at the door. Now, Bobby Kennedy had stolen some of the vials of medicine that Jacobson had given Kennedy and had the FBI analyze it, and the FBI said, you know what this stuff is? 30 to 40 grams of methamphetamine. Hitler was taking this drug during World War II. This is a terrible drug. It's destroying your brother. Well, when Bobby confronted JFK about it, JFK said, frankly, I don't care if it's horse piss. It makes me feel good. Hence, the CIA dubbed him Dr. Feelgood. So they go to the White House, and Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy throws him out. You guys get back to Manhattan. You're just a bunch of snively. He called them dirty Jews. Get out of here. We don't want you here. Go, uh, go back to Manhattan. Well, so Max Jacobson wrote a letter to Evelyn Lincoln, Kennedy's secretary, just resigning as his doctor, saying, I'm not going to take this stuff. JFK's in a panic. He was hooked. He was a drug addict. Flies to Manhattan, stays in the Carlisle Hotel where he always stayed, presidential suite, says to Jacob, summons Jacobson. Jacobson comes over and says, give me a double shot. I want a special shot, a double shot. Gives him that shot, leaves, agrees that he's going to stay as doctor, that Kennedy will come to New York. Kennedy is so high that he rips off all – now, remember, the New York press – and the Washington press are in camp downstairs in the lobby of the hotel. Kennedy rips off his clothing and goes running through the halls of the Carlisle Hotel. He's stark naked. Well, not only is the Secret Service panicked and Kennedy's staff panicked, so they basically go through their Rolodex. Who was the top psychiatrist um, um, in New York City? It was this person, Dr. Lawrence Hatterer. Lawrence Hatterer was very, very famous. He, he had uh, counseled many Holocaust survivors. He was a very, very important psychiatrist in Manhattan. So they summon him. Hatterer um, gives Kennedy a shot. Now, how do I know this? 
Lawrence Hatterer told me. We sat in Lawrence Hatterer's office. He told me the whole. He told us the whole. Rick and I were there. He told me the whole. Told us the whole story. But here's what he did, which is why this book took so. Why that anecdote? We're waiting for that anecdote. I hate to say we're waiting with bated breath, but waiting. Lawrence Hatterer looks at Rick, looks at me, and he just from eye to eye. Right? He's looking. We're sitting across the desk, and he says, "You boys," because he's. <laughs> much older, he goes, you boys don't publish this story. I'm sworn to secrecy. You can publish this story after I'm dead. So literally, I hate, it was like a death watch, waiting, Lawrence Hatterer was in his 90s, waiting for Lawrence Hatterer until he died. I mean, that was really why this book, you know, uh, we just waited, because we couldn't use this story until he died. Until he had passed away. What a story. What an incredible story. Dr. Feelgood is the name of the book, folks, and it's the shocking story of the doctor who may have changed history by treating and drugging JFK, Marilyn, Elvis, and others. And our guest tonight is Bill Burns, of course, www.nightfrightshow.com. Click on tonight's book cover. That'll take you right to a spot where you can order the book from the comfort of your own home. 310, folks, 310. 421-4053. If you have any questions for Bill, be happy to put you online with him. 310-421-4053. So this is shocking news. I had never heard that story about JFK running naked through a hotel. Um, it makes you wonder how stoned he was during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, um, we know that when he went to Vienna in 1961. Remember when when he went to mm -hmm. Vienna in 1961 for that summit with Khrushchev. Right, he'd already time. pulled back the um, United States support for the Cuban for the Cubans who were invading Cuba. Right there was there was the Bay of Pigs. Pigs. Yeah. Right, and this was such a botched operation. I mean, partly you could understand Kennedy's thinking. It was I mean Eisenhower had green lighted the operation. He'd set it up. And then Kennedy gave the final green light, but the operation was so botched, I mean, really, that the Cubans that were, because I, I also met one of the people who was involved in that, Felix Rodriguez. He was the person oh, who wow. tracked okay. down, yeah. he was the person who tracked down Che Guevara and delivered the news to Che. I remember when you know, um, uh, uh, Felix told me the story. He said, um, we had tracked down, he told me the whole story, the whole downside of Che Guevara. He said this guy was not the great revolutionary. He was a, he was a weak need. He was just pathetic. He was just a, he had low self-esteem. He'd been preconditioned by the East German Stasi. Castro hated his guts because Castro sure. thought that this guy was, and so he was tracked down somewhere in Venezuela. And uh, when the, he was captured, I was assisting the the, uh, uh, the local army unit in capturing this guy when he was captured I delivered the news and he said that I said to Che Guevara I was respectful even though I knew what kind of a guy was he said Comandante I must deliver this bad news to you you have been sentenced to death and it was Felix who cut off um, che Guevara's ring finger and had that sent to Castro so Castro would know that Che Guevara was dead well, wow. the Cuban Missile Crisis was uh, was caused in part because of that botched Bay of Pigs operation. That's right. And here's where the story gets interesting. 
couple of things. One, the Soviet Union, nobody knows this. You know who told me this? Dick Morris told me this on his radio show. Oh, really? Nobody yeah, knows this. Yeah. 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 He's a researcher, by the way, folks. He's a wonderful researcher. He's got a book here called The Man Who Knew Too Much. Um, he also does a lot of research with Jesse Ventura and writes books with him. Sorry to interrupt you, Bill. So Dick, so Dick Morris, who worked for Bill Clinton in the White House, Dick Morris said that the Soviet Union in 1961-62 did not possess an ICBM. They did not possess an intercontinental ballistic missile. What they possessed was intermediate-range ballistic missiles. So they did not have a missile that could hit the United States. We had ICBMs that could hit them. And, of course, we had missiles in Turkey. Right. The That's closer right. to your target you can place your missiles, the, the, the shorter the warning time That's your right. target has. So we really had the Soviet Union enveloped. So the, the Soviets wanted to make a push on Cuba to get missiles 90 miles from Florida. That was the motivation for Khrushchev, because what he'd done was he'd lied to his own Supreme Soviet. He told the Supreme Soviet that Russia did have an ICBM. <clears throat> it was and a total lie. Good. No, it was a total lie. And so they put missiles in, uh, missiles in Cuba. Now, at the very first, Kennedy was going to ignore those missiles. Yes, he and was. here's where Philip Corso comes in. Philip Corso, this was 1962, was still in the Army. And Philip Corso saw the National Reconnaissance Office photos of the Soviet building missile installations in Cuba. And, 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 and when he asked the NRO folks, I mean, remember, Corso was an intelligence officer, mm -hmm. and he was at the Pentagon. So when he asked them what was going on, they said, well, the president, you know, he knows, but and the, Kennedy was going off to Hyannisport on vacation. So Corso went to Mike Fagan, who was a columnist, and he went to his friends in Congress, and he blew the whistle on Soviets installing missiles. Well, when the Boston papers came out with that news, that's when Kennedy did this U-turn and came back, and that began the Cuban Missile Crisis. But wow. all that stemmed from Khrushchev believing that he could roll, push Kennedy around. And why did he believe he could push Kennedy around? Why did he believe that Kennedy would buckle under Khrushchev? Why? Because Max Jacobson accompanied JFK to Vienna because JFK begged Jacobson that he had to have his, 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 his vitamin plus shots, really methamphetamine, his vitamin plus shots, to have the strength to confront Khrushchev. So, but remember, Khrushchev's KGB had ransacked Jacobson's office the week before the trip to Vienna. So they had all of Kennedy's medical records. So they knew exactly what was going on. And, of course, Jacobson had been turned in Vienna in the 1930s. He had been a Soviet operative. Hoover knew this. In fact, you should see, go to the FBI and bring down Jacobson's file. You'll see it all. So anyway, Jacobson travels to Vienna. He gives Kennedy his injection, and they're timing it for when the meeting with Khrushchev will begin. Khrushchev delays the meeting. He doesn't show up. The, the drug is wearing off. Kennedy is, is floundering at this point. He's sweating. He's, he's, he's in withdrawal. He's 
begging, begging Jake Jacobson, Mr. President, if I give you too much, it's not going to work. Please, you've got to give it to me. He gives him a shot. Khrushchev shows up. And Kennedy, of course, has to go to the bathroom because that's one of the side effects. Too. You're always going to the bathroom. He runs out, gets another shot. At this point, he is almost stuporously drunk on the narcotic completely stuporously drunk. And Khrushchev looks at this guy and says, he's a boy, he's a puppy. He's peeing all over himself. I could roll this guy over. In fact, when they, and that's when Khrushchev makes his demand. Either you pull your troops out of Berlin or I'm going to push you in ways you won't believe. And Kennedy is so frightened because he's now under the influence of this drug. He can't think. And Khrushchev says, that's my ultimatum. Do it or we're going to have a confrontation you're not going to like. And the meeting ends. Well, Kennedy, of course, goes from Vienna. He has this meeting in Berlin where he's meeting with Scotty Reston of the New York Times. And he says to Scotty Reston, this was the worst day of my life. Khrushchev humiliated me. But he never tells him why. Shortly thereafter, in 62, there's the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Berlin Wall goes up. It was Max Jacobson's injections and Max Jacobson's presence that crashed the 1961 Vienna Conference and brought about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, that's amazing, amazing research. And it's funny you mentioned Mr. Kennedy going to the John all the time. This is where he met Mr. Abraham Bolden, folks, who was the first African Secret Service agent handpicked by JFK. Uh, in Chicago in 1961, Mr. Kennedy was there with a motorcade, and he was making a speech, um, a thank you speech to Mayor Daley for all his efforts in getting him elected. And the first thing he had to do when he arrived was run to the John, and that's where they stuck Mr. Bolden because he was black. Mm -hmm. uh, they wanted him yes. out of the way. And that's exactly where he met Mr. Bolden and, and offered him the job to be the first African-American Secret Service agent. That's a true story. So maybe that had something to do with him running to the John and fate just took its route. Um, well, Ke so, um, uh, uh, one of the people, no, one of the people we spoke to for the book was the head of Jackie's, uh, is is um, the Secret Service agent who was in charge of Jackie Kennedy and the kids. That he was his protection, uh, mm -hmm. her protection. That was Paul Landis. That's right. And Paul Landis was behind the limousine on the day of the assassination. And I went over this with Paul Landis again and again. In fact, we were probably going to wind up doing a book with Paul Landis. And I went over this again and again, and Paul Landis said to us that he's also the person who's responsible for giving Max Jacobson. He called Max Jacobson Dr. Frankenstein. He said this guy was really just a bad guy. And, and he knew him, and he knew him after the assassination, because remember, he was protecting Jackie until she married um, Aristotle uh, Jack, Onassis, Aristotle, yeah. and then the kids kept their um, Secret Service protection. I don't know if Carolyn has Secret Service protection when she's now, she's the ambassador to Japan. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, but I don't, she probably does. She probably does, because all the president's kids have protection throughout their lives. But in any event, um, he said that he remembered that the first shot as they were going toward the bridge in Dealey Plaza came from over his right shoulder. Well, that would have been the book depository. But the, he said the second shot, because he said we're, we're tuned. He said, first of all, Dealey Plaza was like an echo chamber, right, because you're going down and you've That's got right. the sides of the plaza up. And he said that, that was – but he said he remembered, and he said the shots, the cracks were reverberating through the, through the plaza. 
but he remembers that the second shot, and remember, Kennedy is on the right side of the back seat, Jackie's on the left. And so he said the second shot came from in front of the car. And he looks up and he sees men running across the bridge from the, in fact, he was the one who invented the term, the grassy knoll, from the grassy knoll over the bridge. And he said he saw the back of Kennedy's head come off. And he said that told him that that kill shot came from the front because the back of his head wouldn't have exploded. Precisely. Precisely. And folks, um, many of you know I've written a book on the Kennedy assassination uh, based on my uh, research and interviews with first-person witnesses, including Kennedy speechwriter Ted Sorensen. We just talked about the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was Ted Sorensen that JFK had tasked to write the letter to Khrushchev to get him to back down and come to some kind of co accommodation. Uh, very true. In that follow-up car was a Secret Service car. There was two of Kennedy's top aides in that car. One was uh, Kenny O'Donnell. The right. other one was Dave Powers. They both mm -hmm. are on record as saying they saw the shots come from the grassy knoll. Exactly. In front exactly. of Kennedy. And that's right. important, folks, because the official Warren Commission document says all the shots originated from behind JFK. And, and who was the chief investigator? And who was the chief uh, investigator yes, for the Warren Commission? An inspector. Mr. Spector invented the uh, magic bullet. And Arlen it was Spector, yes, who yeah. invented the magic bullet. Arlen Spector was also the guy. Um, I mean, he, he's got a fascinating, fascinating history, both as, an, as a district attorney and uh, the person who's responsible for the magic bullet theory, and then, of course, as the very famous Pennsylvania senator for years. Uh, I've got a question here from um, – it's a text question – was it Paul that was pulled from the rear-armed escort position during motorcade JFK shooting? What, Paul Landis um, was, was what happened Paul? to Paul Landis? Yes, it was Paul Landis was moved from the limousine following Kennedy. Mm -hmm. He was told to run up to the limousine after the first shot and get on and, and get on the running board of of the actual Kennedy limousine. Yes. Something Clint Hill ended up doing and pushing Jackie back into the car. Yes, that's what yeah. Clint Hill did. We've only got a minute left, Bill. Is there something you'd like to leave the folks with? I'd love to have you back, by the way, anytime. Oh, I've sure. Thoroughly, you know, whenever you need me. Whenever you need this, me. This um, right now, I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle. I'm trying to close out book two of UFO Hunters, and that's why this, the story of um, Lloyd Pye was so important, because this is exactly the point where I am in the book, talking about Lloyd Pye and his experiments, and, and, and uh, I really do think that if there's any one piece of evidence that says that everything you know about history is wrong, it is that star child skull. It, makes, it has no reason to be on planet Earth except they were living here. They were part here. They were here thousands of years ago, okay? And I think mm -hmm. that's part of the proof. I think that makes perfect sense. I really do. Folks, we've been speaking with the best, Bill Burns, folks. Uh, all this information can be found at the www.nightfrightshow.com website. And Brent, uh, yes, and, please, and Brent can, I just, uh, can I just say, folks, join us on Future Theater yes. Monday night, 7 o'clock Eastern. Fantastic show.
and I'll put the uh, the URL for that. And there's that darn music. It always starts just when we're getting going. Thank you, Bill. All the best to you, to you and Nancy.